0: Hey Ollie. Hey Dave. What is going on today?
1: Hey. Today is a good day, Dave. Uh, today, you today.
0: You didn't get to use your AK. You didn't have to use your AK. My
1: AK? <laughs>
0: it's an old. It's a song from Ice Cube. Today was a good day. <laughs> didn't have today, to use my AK. Today was a good day. Yes. Didn't use my AK. Yeah. Good. Good to know.
1: No, I, I did not use my AK today, nor any time this week.
0: Oh, wonderful! 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 Okay. So, podcasting again. Welcome to the What Difference Does It Make podcast.
1: Yes, and as I said, it's a really good day.
0: You know, we're a member of the Pantheon Podcast family, so that's always good, too.
1: That is one reason it's a good day. Reason number two, we have special guest with us in the virtual studio. That is Annie Zaleski, music journalist extraordinaire.
0: You know, anytime you get to talk about Duran Duran, it's a good day, right? Oh, my God. Yeah,
1: We can go, I know we can go forever talking about Duran Duran, but Annie has written this book. She's written a 33 and a third book about Rio, the Duran Duran album, Rio, for any of our listeners that may not be clear about that.
0: When we talk Duran Duran, this is not an ordinary world. This is an extraordinary world. Let's get into it. Talk with Annie Zaleski about Duran Duran's Rio. Are you ready to talk Duran Duran?
2: I am. (laughs) 95% of my brain is Duran Duran most days. (laughs) for <laughs> now yeah even before that though because my husband's a big Duran Duran fan too and so when he and I got married you know we we merged the collections mm. and so we have Duran Duran stuff from all eras all over our house which is cool
1: my hairdresser told me a story yesterday he said did not I ever tell you I did Simon Bon's hair And I said, no, 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 I guess no reason that would have come up except that we talk 80s music all the time. And so he said, I think it was the 90s. He was cutting hair and a client of his who was also a friend was a model and she was like station, like the Beverly Hills, I think it was the Beverly Hills Hotel, wanted her to just hang out the pool to, to draw, you know, other people in, you know, to make it look good basically. So anyway, she ends up talking to Simon LeBond, doesn't know that it's him. Talking, hanging out, they become friendly. You know, she's a fixture at the pool, and he was staying yeah. there for a few months, I guess. He mentioned needing a haircut, and she said, oh, let me hook you up with my hairdresser. And he comes to Malcolm, my hairdresser, and the model never said that it was Simon LeBond or a musician or anything. It was just a guy, you know, a good-looking guy. Yeah. And he comes into the salon, and Malcolm is, you know, staring at him, looking at his hair, and he's, you know, really into music. And he said, um, Simon LeBond. She did say my friend Simon. Yeah. And he said, yeah, he, he chuckled because he didn't really, you know, he, it took him a little while to, to say anything about it. You know, it was, this was the '90s, So they'd had their, you know, they were in their heyday. Yeah. He said, so he, every time he was here, he would just come for a haircut, but the woman didn't know he had to tell Malcolm, my hairdresser had to explain to this woman who this was.
2: That's so funny. You know what though? I bet like, I bet a lot of musicians, they appreciate that. Cause I mean, it can get you know, it can get really overwhelming. I think sometimes if like you go everywhere and it's like you know, it's like your name in lights, you're famous. It's like sometimes you just want to do like normal stuff. You know, even like meeting rock stars. Sometimes it's like up close, you're like kind of familiar. Why do you look familiar? And then like you put two and two together because you just you know it just sometimes it just doesn't matter. You know. Yeah. That's cool though. Yeah. So he's yeah. a good hairdresser. That that's a good seal. Yeah. Person, like yeah. <laughs> so.
0: Yeah. I guess musicians uh, got a load of uh, being normal for for the past year, which is like.
2: I know. You know,
0: yep. suddenly, like just doddering around the house, like okay, well, yeah. maybe I'll record something, or I don't know what to do with myself.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Suddenly, you're normal again. Yeah, um, a
1: few podcasts by Zoom. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Of course. Actually, I wanted to to ask you about your your gateway drug. What was <laughs> what was your entry into the Duran Duran world?
2: So I would say because you know, I've been thinking about that, and you know, trying to figure out. I think it was the wedding album. So I'm, I'm a little bit younger. I was, you know, mm-hmm. I was an '80s kid, but I wasn't, you know, I don't, I wasn't watching MTV. I was too young and things like that. But it was the wedding album. Um, you know, I was kind of, you know, I was a kid. I was, you know, coming home after school, and I was starting to watch MTV. And the videos for Ordinary World and Come Undone and Too Much Information. Mm-hmm. Those were like the three that MTV was playing a ton. And at the same time the radio station so I grew up in Cleveland and we had a really good alternative rock station the end that it just started the end yes exactly yeah. you know that so they, it was <laughs> so good and they played Duran Duran um and so those like and uh, so that was like my first entry and which is you know and that was you know obviously as, as fans will tell you that was kind of like their like resurgence mm-hmm. in America that you know it yeah. was During the grunge era, they were making these beautiful power ballads and these kind of cool electronic music. And that came back. Um, And Duran Duran was very, very popular in Cleveland from the very beginning. Um, Because, I mean, David Bowie and Brian Ferry were super, super popular in Cleveland. And, you know, Duran Duran was so influenced by them, you know, it just resonated so well with audiences. Like they played in Cleveland on their first U.S. tour. And they did an off date when they were touring with blondie in 82 they did an off date in cleveland too which is cool at the legendary agora so but yeah that was my gateway and i guess at the same time um just because i mean and and you will probably remember in the early 90s like kind of 80s alternative like flashback lunches and flashback you know so big on alternative stations and so all of that early Duran Duran stuff too was sort of filtered in as well. And so I think I ended up picking up Decade at some point on CD, because it was, you know, probably in our used record store and things like that. And I just, you know, I kind of went backwards from there. You know, I was able to get vinyl really cheap, just because no one was collecting at that time. So I got their debut in Rio.
0: Really? So, you, so. you've always been a vinyl girl. So even in the 90s, you were you were collecting? I did. And, and it's, wow. it's
2: funny because I, you know, I don't know if I just, I have no idea, you know, in hindsight, I was trying to think of like was my mindset as a teenager that I was, you know, picking up vinyl, maybe because mm-hmm. it's cheap or maybe because I was just like, oh, I'm really obsessed with this. But yeah, in, you know, I saw Duran Duran for the first time in 97 on the Medazzaland tour. And I knew all of like the early stuff. And <laughs> I realized it's because I had the records on vinyl and I would be listening to them on my parents' turntable. So I, for whatever reason, I always gravitated toward it, maybe because I was a big 80s music fan always. And so, of course, you know, I was like, oh, the vinyl, the art is so cool. And it's, you know, it's a lot, you know, not as compact as CDs and it just had a different listening experience.
0: Oh, I agree. Totally. Um, I music
1: appreciator for sure. Yes, but that's funny. You, you don't hear many people. That, that was a very good question, Dave. I, you assume <laughs> that it's 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 Rio or planet Earth, you know, but you are if you're younger the gateway to Duran you yeah. know what or what was your your entry into Duran Duran you rarely hear wedding album.
2: <laughs> but it's weird is that, you know, I like the the. it's one of the things the band like always felt like they were there, though, you know, because I feel like I at the same time, I feel like maybe VH1 must have played yeah. Rio yeah. and Hungry Like the Wolf because that video was just it's so familiar to me. Like every time I see it, I know every nook and Granny, And obviously I've read it on YouTube, but it's just they're just they've just always been there. It's almost like they're just such a part of pop culture in America that, you know, I just sort of. You know, they're just a, such a steady presence.
0: So, what did your bedroom look like in uh while you were in high school? What did you have posters so and uh, who who were on there? I was Who's was on the walls.
2: Allowed to put stuff on my wall. This was this was the argument that I would have with my parents <laughs> because well, a I wanted to paint one of my bedroom walls black and they did not like that either. I
0: was <laughs> so gone. Besides
2: goth. Being, I know. Well, oh, uh, besides my my favorite bands were REM, The Smiths. Duran Duran, U two, and I probably like Echo and the Bunnymen. Those were like all of my biggies as a kid. Huh, that's why,
0: why we like you. That,
2: yeah, I was <laughs> I was kind of a weird kid, and that you know, and I I liked all the grunge and all the contemporary stuff, but I was also a big eighties fan. So okay, so I couldn't paint my bedroom wall black. Um, so we compromised. I had like a wall, wall like wallpaper that was kind of like grayscale, but I wasn't allowed to just like stick stuff on the walls, you know. So I had like a framed Beatles poster and a framed REM poster. You know, I had, I had to be classy. It
1: had to look like but, art.
2: Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> so I had, you know, that, that was the rule of my parents. I'm like, okay. You know, in my locker, I had a picture of, I had like a photocopy picture of Michael Stipe. Um, I, I think that's, that's, I'm trying to remember. But that's what I would do. I would, like, our school library had like old issues of Rolling Stone. So I oh, would like nice. read that. Like, I remember reading the 84 Rolling Stone with Duran Duran on the cover. And I remember... You know, downloading pictures and this was like, you know, right when we got on the Internet, like mm-hmm. on my modem, downloading vintage pictures of like all these 80s bands, you know, and including, you know, Culture Club and Duran Duran. And so that's what I would do. Like instead of having stuff on my wall, I would have it on like my computer, like on a folder saved, which is a very funny kind of 90s thing to do, I think. I wanted it to. Is- my college dorm had pictures everywhere, and I you know they were. In hindsight, it was such a pain to put up and take down because you had that little mm-hmm. blue sticky tack. Like yeah. Those- <laughs>
0: it's because yeah, because you couldn't put the thumbtack in those. Yeah.
2: Exactly. Uh, so yeah. Every dorm, every dorm was like that.
0: that. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, so.
2: But so I got my revenge on my parents then. So.
0: Okay, so what about your peers? I mean, you're suddenly you're like all into 80s, and everyone's uh, it's. Not, <laughs> I'm sure you're asked this a lot. <laughs> you know, 90 mid 90s, it's friends type stuff. You know, Hootie and the Blowfish and Better Than Ezra and all this other like pop pop rock and Lilith Fair things. Yeah. And you're listening to The Cure and.
2: It was funny because I so I grew up in I grew up in suburban Ohio. Um, so I guess like a suburb of Cleveland, and I was definitely like the weird like a weird I mean, I was, you know, I was like the big English, you know, reading fan. And so I was big into English and math and stuff like that. So I was like, I was a good student. So I was kind of a nerd, um, nerdy student. I was in marching band. Um, But then, yeah, I played the flute. All right. Nice. Um, But yeah, I was like, I remember, it's funny. I, I have like distinct memories is that I had a bandana and I would tie it around my jeans leg to like because like they did it in the 80s. I don't even know where I saw that. Like maybe it was in like a Bruce Springsteen video or so. I have no idea. It was Chachi to- from
0: the Chachi from Happy Days, I believe, did that.
2: Apparently, I have no idea why I did this, but I would tie it around my leg and that's what I would wear to school. I'd have my jeans and I'd have a bandana around my leg. <laughs> Because apparently I wanted to live in the 80s. So it was very, it was very funny. But yeah, it was definitely very weird. My musical tastes were very different than a lot of my friends' musical tastes. And like, you know, I've always had really kind of voracious musical tastes. I love Metallica and I loved, you know, Nirvana and I loved, you know, Tori Amos and things like that. But it was definitely, the 80s was like my sweet spot. You know, my dad had a lot of tapes, like he loved the cars and the pretenders and the police and so, you know, I borrowed a lot of his tapes and listened to. But that was what I enjoyed listening to: the Go Go's. For whatever reason, I've always really gravitated toward that music.
0: That's great, though. So now you, you've got uh, you've got something cool to write about, and exactly. this book that you have this book this thirty three and a third book about Duran Duran's Rio. What is that? How do you uh, this thirty three and a third book series is great. I love these uh, all these books. What do you do to say? Uh, You know, like, (laughs) raise your hand. Like, I want to write about this book. How does that work?
2: They basically have an open call for pitches and Mm. they have a on their website. I don't remember it offhand, but it's basically like, here's a book proposal and here's what we want you to include. Um, you know, it's kind of like, you know, two to three pages on why you want to write the book, a little bit of, you know, are there books by this artist coming out, some sample, you know, sample pages. So you would basically have to, you know, like a paragraph about what the book's about. So it's basically putting a lot of thought into a proposal. And so this, I don't even remember if this if this was maybe 2018, maybe. I think that's when the proposal was, maybe there was a call for proposals. And so I had been pitching Rio for years before that. I pitched it at least twice, if not three times. I pitched it in 2007, I think for the first time. Mm-hmm. And so I've always had it in the back of my mind that I'm like, I want to write about this. I want to write about this. And I, you know, I was, I was like, I think I was work busy and I was working on something. And so, you know, I wasn't necessarily going to pitch this round. And then a friend of mine's like, yeah, I'm not going to, you know, but I was like, you know what I should, I should just do it. And so like Right before the deadline, I took my old (laughs) proposal and I looked at it and I tore it up a little bit and started thinking about it a little bit more and basically sat down and wrote it. And, you know, I got like, it was a couple months later, I got an email saying, you know, congratulations, we're going to publish it. And I was just like, I was like shaking. The, The album is A, besides being, you know, amazing and wonderful, has a good story behind it. And I've always really believed in it. And I've really always believed in Duran Duran. And so... I mean, like I t- I've been telling people, I'm like, this is like a dream come true, but it's like literally like a career dream come true.
1: <laughs> Not knowing the process before, I would think it would be like winning the lottery, you know? Yeah,
2: and it is. It's very, very competitive. They're, yeah. you know, I think they generate, they get hundreds of proposals each time. So I think whatever, you know, I thought know I'd done it before. And so I think whatever it is, I finally kind of was able to articulate to someone else because it's it's like selling, you know, yeah. you're basically selling yourself and you're selling an idea You know, and I'm a freelance journalist, and so you do that all the time. You're putting together pitches together, and it takes skill. And sometimes you work, sometimes it works, and you hit, and sometimes you don't. And so I finally landed on the right combination. I was was able to kind of say and be persuasive enough. And you know, and I think it's timing too. You know, I think when I first started pitching. You know, Duran Duran was, um, didn't get as much respect as they do now. And I think over the last decade or so, especially, you've seen people, you know, they've gotten a lot more respect musically and just from a lot of different places. And so I think the timing was also right that, and I think for New Wave, too, people are really starting to look at New Wave bands, you know, like the Go-Go's and the Cure and saying, you these like artistically, these are really important acts. And so I think that helps a little bit, too, that people are finally starting to give New Wave the credit that it's long been due.
1: So you have your next one, your next pitch for them lined up. You know, I, uh, I, it's funny because I'm,
2: I'm working on a book on the B-52s as well um, at the same time, actually, for University of Texas Press. And so I've been, you know, working on Duran Duran and B-52s. And so I have like my, you know, new wave stuff. I think they only let you write one for the 33 to 3rd series. Oh. But I would, you know, I have a million ideas, you know, it was. But not every album because it's, you know, these books are just about one album, you know, and it's yeah. sometimes it can be difficult to think you're writing almost 40,000 words on one album. Yeah. So it has to be an album with a good story to tell.
0: Okay, so we're going to consider this a album and you just listened to side 1, which is glorious. Side 2 is even better. So stick with us and we will be right back to continue our discussion of Duran Duran's Rio on the What Difference Does It Make podcast.
1: welcome back to the what differences That make podcast with our very special guest talking about Rio with Annie Zaleski.
0: So let let's talk, let's Rio. talk Rio. Are you ready <laughs> to talk Rio? Absolutely. All right, so set the scene for second album. I mean, for a lot of people this was their entry and you know, this is yeah. where they discovered Duran Duran because the first album did okay, but it didn't, you know, launch them into the stratosphere. What was the band's thinking at this time for this second album, which is always important. You always hear about the sophomore slump. Where were they at the time?
2: It's so interesting. And I did so much research for the book. And, you know, what's so interesting is that when you look at Duran Duran's early history, you know, they did their first show in summer of 1980 and they released their first album in June of 1981. Rio came out in May of 1982. Mm -hmm. So within two years, they not only formed and released two albums, but they basically had this whirlwind two years. And so why that's important is that they basically hit the road. You know, they formed and they started doing some shows. They signed a record deal at the end of 1980. And they were they already had a bunch of songs. And so they already had kind of some stuff written. They were just really on the go. They were just working incredibly hard. And so by the end of 1981, they had a couple of songs written, but they basically, they never stopped. They never stopped creating and writing. And so, you know, they recorded Rio in early 1982 and that was kind of coming at the end of an incredibly busy year. I mean, they literally, they globe trotted, they went everywhere. And so the record came out of that, you know, all the experiences they were having in terms of, you know, Rio is you know about if you listen to it it's about travel and it's about you know a beautiful woman that Simon Laban saw in a cafe and he kind of built a song around that but it's also about you know the excitement of being so many new places you know if you listen to it it's about all the clubs they there's some references to clubs they went to you know there's traveling and so it basically came out of this just really exciting year and when you're a young band and, you know, you're getting to know each other and you're really, you know, kind of all going in the same direction. There's just a lot of creativity. And so I think there was that Going on as well. You know, the first album, they were kind of getting to know each other and trying to figure out their kind of musical path. And then with Rio, they all were just like firing on all cylinders. And I mean, that's kind of a cliche, but it's true. When you listen to the record, they were all energized by everything. And the songwriting, they just hit on, you know, a nine song perfect pop album. You know, any of the songs on the record could be a single. So yeah, I mean, so they recorded the record in early 1982 at Air Studios in London. Um, and so, you know, as they always say that Paul McCartney was recording there too, it would pop around and say, low which is you know totally normal so paul you know, but i mean yeah you know were, <laughs> as beatles fans you know they were just like oh my god you know so it was pretty great and but yeah that's kind of the start of it and so they you know that's basically it is that their creativity you know there was they evolved really fast because they were working really hard and on the road and just playing music and really enjoying being in a band and all those things you know when you have all three of those things together um yeah that's great
1: But you are right. This, this, you called it a perfect pop album. And I had forgotten. I listen, I have songs. Some of these songs are on, you know, playlists that I listen to regularly, but I listened to it as an album a a week or two ago. And you're right. It is perfect. And so much more perfect than I remembered. And what you're talking, you're talking about them being, you know, exactly what you're saying. Pat, you know, passionate, it's new. And, you know, everything is so exciting. And you really hear that on the album.
2: Yeah. And it's like, and that's what I think why, you know, it it's, resonated with people then and now it's mm-hmm. just like it is so exciting I mean you could you know you listen uh, so much music in the early 80s that I still love you know there's there's it's very meditative and very dour and you know mm-hmm. it's for good reason you know like we said we talked about the cure all of the early 80s were so records were so gloomy and I love them because they're gloomy and you know and Duran Duran had their moodiness too but there is something about Rio that's just you know it's ecstatic they were trying to capture that feeling of mm-hmm you know, it's possibility and it's escapism and it's excitement about their own lives. But, you know, but I think was also so brilliant about the record is that, you know, a lot of bands, they, you know, they'll write about, you know, I'm on the road. This is very exciting. You <laughs> can tell it's very literal. And, you know, Simon is such an interesting vocalist, lyricist, that he channeled all that stuff into these kind of, you know, I think someone in the book, you know, called them kind of surreal lyrics. And I, I would totally agree with that. They're kind of abstract and surreal, and so they're 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 sketches. They're poetic sketches more than anything, you know. Reading into the lyrics, I'm just like, I'm still trying to figure out some of these things. You can tell the gist of them, but it's you know 100. You can't see, but it is exciting, and it's so listenable because of that. Then you know, it's so fun. You put it on, you want to get on the dance floor. You know, it's that's why I think people still like it too because it you know reminds them mm-hmm. of happy times. But it's you know also just a really listenable album too.
1: You forget about the musicianship, though, because you watch them, you know, you're you're transfixed with their video, you know, on their videos, but they they play, they're players, they're mm-hmm. musicians,
2: they're really good. And that's, I think, another thing, and that, that came up when I was, um, you know, doing the book, and I talked to John Taylor, Roger Taylor, Nick Rhodes, and also Andy Taylor for the book. And, you know, they, they, it came up, I think, when talking to John, is that, you know, everybody on that album, every musician had their corner, everybody had their parts and everybody was really, you know, kind of at their kind of peak. And you really hear that. And but I think the the brilliant thing about it is that you know, they didn't play over each other. The arrangements are yeah. so good. You know, you think of a song like New Religion that has that, which is actually probably my I think it's in the course of doing the book, it kind of grew <laughs> to the top as being my favorite song on the record. But it's like everybody has these really interesting parts from the kind of the, the spooky keyboards and then you have the guitars that kind of come in and the bass and drums, and everything. I'll
4: bring my diamond in Seagulls gather on the wind Later screaming and later leave me out Cause sometimes people stand down on electric chair demon cows, they gather and they shout
2: But they're all done in such a way that they're just it, the arrangements are perfect. They're all they're all perfectly balanced, and you know a lot of bands they would be you know crashing into each other and it would be you know kind of loud and stuff. But it's all very meticulous and deliberate, and you hear that especially on Rio. I think especially throughout the whole album. Yeah. Dave,
0: yep. do you have a favorite
1: song
0: on this oh, album? <laughs> well, yeah. I, well, actually, I mean, I was just going to touch on. It was a record, and I love that. I think the reason it's good is I kind of didn't like the CD era because everyone kind of wanted to fill it up with seventy minutes worth of music, and that's not necessarily a good thing for for an album. This has nine songs on it, and I just I love how it just uh, you know it it kicks off with Rio, which is just you know like like you said, this is an adventure, you know. Immediately as it as it starts off, like, oh, my God, we're, we're going for, for a journey. I had actually written something like as I, as I was looking at the lyrics, like one of my favorites was it was almost remind me of like a Springsteen lyric. Look at that. Did he nearly run you down? At the end of the drive, the lawmen arrive. You make me feel alive, alive, alive. I mean, that's like that's epic. You want to do like that Springsteen thing, like alive, 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 <laughs> you know? Um, like when
2: that song crests at that line too. You think about it, it's just like, it's perfect. Like it's just crescendoing and crescendoing. And, you know, you're right. You know, I mean, before, you know, this is I think before, you know, you would have like the beat drop on like songs, but it crests. And then it just like lays into like the end of the song. Like it's perfect. It's just, yeah. The dynamics of that song, especially, are just perfect and that line too. Yeah. It's just, and you know, and that's the the sequencing of the album, which was, Definitely, you know, no accident, you know, Duran Duran are, uh, will tell you, be the first ones to tell you, yeah, we are very careful about sequencing and Rio is sequenced perfectly, you know, and that's especially on vinyl, basically. I mean, it's, you know, flip it over like it's a marvel in that sense.
0: That's funny because I was
2: with the chauffeur. Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> that's funny because I was looking, I was thinking sequencing too, but, um, but I had just listened to, because I think you posted it of them talking about It was like a radio special and it was like nine minutes of them talking about the album, each song. But they mentioned that side one was mainly pop songs and that side two conceptual. And that's how they envisioned it.
2: What's funny about that, though, is that it's totally conceptual, but they also all work as pop songs. Yeah. You know, sometimes when you hear bands say, oh, we're going to have side two, that's really all experimental stuff is you're just like, you know, you never go to the side two because you're like, oh, it's a little much. But like <laughs> side two songs were so great. I mean, Save a Prayer was on side two Rio. I mean, which is, you know, such a one of their best songs, you know, their amazing ballad and but yeah, it is, it is kind of the moodier stuff The kind of, there's a little bit more experimentation on side too, but it works. It's, it's perfect.
0: Can I ask you why we would save a prayer for Simon instead of it's a, it's about a one night stand. She sees him, she sees him. It was kind of like um, standing on the corner of Winslow, Arizona or something like, so this woman's (laughs) this woman sees him and they have this one night stand and then he's he's back on the road or something like, Hey, save a prayer for me now. Like I never understood that.
2: It's hard to know where, you know, the, the origins of that song come from, but I think that's very, I mean, uh, sadly, you know, it's kind of romanticizing that a little bit because yeah, if you're having a one night stand with someone and they leave you, that's like, that's like the opposite of romantic, but (laughs) if it was like a perfect night and you're like both of both everyone and both people are like, yeah, I'm I'm good. You know, I don't need anymore. (laughs) This is perfect. We're not going to, we're not going to ruin it by doing something else. I totally get that. And romantic it romanticizes a little bit, you know. You don't know if it's like a one-night stand after you know they've been sort of two people have been dancing around each other for a while. You know, you don't know. You don't know the backstory leading up to that.
0: The backstory Hungry Like a Wolf where he <laughs> there's another one where I mean it's almost like a predator song, kinda as i have look as I was looking down these lyrics.
2: I always thought like Hungry Like the Wolf, I always feel like likened that to like if you were like at a club and like maybe you were like out and you were like you know you maybe spotted someone from across the room <laughs> kind of you know dancing around them and kind of looking at them you know like because there's that like there's that pursuit you know that you the other person's interested and you know you're playing you could be playing hard to get a little bit you know there's that there's that sort of relationship push and pull you know so there's yeah there's there's that and then you know savor prayers may be the consummation of that <laughs> both, both sides of the romantic point <laughs>
0: See, now I was thinking sequencing that would have been I, I don't know if that would make more sense though to put hungry like a wolf before save a prayer or if that you know if new religion should be it should have been the first song on the mm. on this on uh on side two.
2: see I love it I love yeah. new religion because I mean that song you know you have the the grand intro to that song where it just kind of eases in. So you know you turn (laughs) over the record and it's sort of like you immediately know that this is something a little bit different and it's a little bit moodier and it's slowing things down. And then, you know, last chance on the stairway, which I think, you know, is also about You know a party i believe i i I have to look up the exact quote but simon that was one of the ones that they played on their late 1981 tour live and uh simon prefaced it with you know it was a little bit more soulful than a song they had done and it's you know it's basically about a a party that you know you're kind of bereft a little bit and like i i mean how many of us have been at a party where you're just like this is just not working and you're just like having a bad time and you know it's kind of deflating so that's you know i like that
4: you
1: Like that
2: song, I yeah, like and it, listen to it, and, and it's beautiful. And I mean, I think that's so. You know, that's it's like it's track seven on the LP. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of times you go to track seven on a record, and it's you know, you're kind of like looking at your watch because it's done. Filler. But mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a really interesting song. There's you know the little, you know, there's the little sound effects. You know, there's the the at the beginning. There's like you know the. Yeah, you know, I, it's like lighting a cigarette, I think. And I think I think over the years there have been many different stories, whether or not it's a cigarette or a Zippo lighter, um, <laughs> you know, but there's glasses clinking. You can hear that later in the song. Like, it's very, you know, it's it's a little bit fancy. And that's what I think, you know, you actually, if you listen to it on headphones, another like, you know, great thing about the record. I mean, you when if you listen to it on headphones, all those little things pop in. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of little things buried in the mix. It's also a really wonderful mix. You know a lot of times you know a lot of songs it's very surface and then you hear it once you understand it and there's a lot a lot to this record there's a there's a lot of depth to this record that i think makes it very um you know very resonant
0: yeah it was interesting that um I, during this radio special that i just heard they they mentioned that they uh the label wanted last chance on the stairway as a single like the next single the follow-up to rio i think what was the first mm-hmm. the first single was was it was hungry it hungry like the what okay. like so after after "Hungry Like the Wolf," they like they they wanted to follow that up with "The Last Chance on the Stairway," which uh, would have been—I don't know if that would have been a, a good choice, but uh, it's uh, kind of interesting what could have been or what might have right. been. Yeah.
2: Well, and I mean, I guess you know they filmed the. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's what's so funny about it is that when you, I mean, on the one hand, it's like okay, every song on the record could be a single, but yeah, on the other hand, it's like that's really moody. Like even when yeah, you, like, right. hindsight think about all the songs that were popular in 1982 and 1983, especially, you know, that was, that would have been, you know, that's like, like a cool song like Echo and the Bunnymen might've made or like, mm-hmm. you know, the, Cure, or, you know, kind of the, the post-punk bands coming out. Like that would, you know, that would have placed Duran Duran kind of in that, you know, kind of um, grouping sort of thing. But yeah, I couldn't, yeah. in hindsight, you're like, what a weird, it's, it's cool. It's a very cool song, but it's a very odd choice if, the, if that had happened.
1: You do wonder what would have happened with it. I don't know that it would have altered their trajectory, but you never know because Rio skyrocketed.
0: It wasn't just the music, the audio part. There was, there was a little bit of visual going on. And that, was it MTV that launched it? We grew up in Los Angeles. We listened to KROQ. And KROQ play in 81, they, they, uh, they played Girls on Film, which charted. It also charted again in 82 was Girls on Film. They were starting to build up. And this, I don't know when mtv started really pushing these videos but uh like the first video hungry i like the wolf what's the history behind that video
2: so the band went to sri lanka so basically they ended up they finished rio and literally nick rhodes like finished like mixing the record and hopped on a plane and went to sri lanka in early april and they filmed videos there they filmed um they filmed hungry like the wolf they filmed a little bit of lonely in your nightmare they filmed a little Mm -hmm. bit of save a prayer there. And so then, I mean, this is like, their like ridiculous schedule from Sri Lanka. Then they went to Australia and then they went to Japan. And then, you know, I think they basically went home and to England and then the record came out in May. So they were doing all of this stuff. So, but Hungry Like the Wolf is pretty much like they knew they were gonna film the video. Like That was a very deliberate choice. What's interesting is that, so MTV and Duran Duran, they had really laid the groundwork for a relationship. So, you know, MTV launched in August of 81. And they had really already been talking like well before Rio came out. It's funny because finding proof of, you know, and I've watched, I've tried to find as much like 1981 MTV video as I could. (laughs) And they did. Some of their early videos did get airplay because I found press references to it. I found press references from early 82, um, where a record store in Pennsylvania said, you know, yeah, we're selling a lot of Duran Duran records. And in late 81 too, in, in Cleveland. I mean, I mean, basically at that time, the most of the bands that had uh, videos were British because, you know, bi- music videos, there was such there was already a culture in the UK for that. You know, there were some American bands, you know, like Ario Speedwagon and The Cars and some of the more, um, you know, I guess AOR bands had videos, but it was a lot of British bands. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, Hungry Like the Wolf, it was pretty much like a foregone conclusion, I think, that it was going to get added. And I actually found proof that it was added in July of 82, early, early July, 1982. There's a reference that it was basically put into rotation. It's hard to tell how many times it was spun, but at least it was added to MTV. Rio was actually added to MTV too in September of 82. So, I mean, yeah, Duran Duran really started taking off first on MTV and radio came later. Um, There were some stations like K-Rock that were playing them. Um, You know, there was, I I found a a, a really, a, a nice little... A couple of air checks from, like, July 82, they were playing the band before mm-hmm. they played, I think, the Greek theater? Yes. Uh, like Twilly, yeah. And so that you know, so they were definitely getting airplay in L.A. because L.A. was always super cool and ahead of the curve. But, yeah, I mean, they were huge on MTV. And then, you know, radio, they really started hitting at rock radio in, like, but basically Thanksgiving of 82. And then by early 1983, they had finally kind of conquered that with Hungry Like the Wolf. And then everything else sort of exploded from there. But yeah, MTV, they were just getting like so much airplay and they were selling records in areas where, you know, there was where MTV was popular and and, and it was wired and and cities had it. Duran Duran was selling records and in a lot of other places. And, you know, I talked to a lot of people and did a lot of research and it was like, if you shopped in this neighborhood that didn't have MTV, you know, we were not selling Duran Duran records. But if it was a town where there were, you know, MTV, we were totally selling like tons of them. So it's—I mean, it's—it's so—it's so funny to think about now because everything is so different now. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of how it was. It was such a slow rollout um, in America, at least.
0: Who designed the clothing, or what? What was the was it the band's vision on what they wanted? Like, let's go to an exotic locale. Was it the band or was it the director? Like, oh, here's what we have to do. I don't know if you have ever read the book. There's a, a book that just came out by Dylan Jones about the new romantic scene. And,
2: oh yeah, that's on my list to read.
0: Yeah, it's it's really good. You'll you'll love it. Was that always Duran Duran's look? Just uh, you know, just beautiful <laughs>
2: <God>. <laughs> with good hair. Well- What's funny is that, so I think, you know, the the idea to go to Sri Lanka and those locations, I think, was their management. You know, their management definitely had kind of cinematic visions. And the band were down for that, you know, because they were like, sure, you know, you're a young band, you're up for adventure. But funny, their fashion changed so dramatically in their first, I guess, three years, I would say. You know, because I think in, in 81, they were a little bit, you know, they were doing the new romantic kind of pirate look. It was kind of swashbuckling <laughs> and it was, you know. It was very funny. It was, um, you know, but then they got a little bit more casual and then they got their Anthony Price suits. And so you could see some of the very, very early, like Rio press footage, you know, they're wearing their suits, they're all beautiful colors and things like that. And then, you know, as they kind of got a little bit more popular, like so many of their like early 1983 photos, they're like, you know, they look like clean cut, like, I don't, I don't even know, like almost preppy, I guess, in a sense. Uh, But they were all, they're all just so photogenic. I mean, it really didn't matter what they wore. They were all young and they were all good looking. And, you know, so obviously that they had a huge advantage because of that. And, you know, I don't think they ever took like a bad picture. So, I mean, that's always, it's always like, you know, it's always an advantage, you know, and there were, you know, because there were five of them then it's sort of like, if you were into like, you know, one style, there was a member of Duran Duran for you. If you were to another style, there's (laughs) a member of Duran Duran, you know, it was the Spice Girls, obviously, you know, everyone kind of laughed, you know, there's like, you know, Sporty Spice and Scary Spice and all sorts of stuff like that. But, you know, there's whoever was marketing the Spice Girls, like they completely got it. They completely got why. You know, people have fandom. But I mean, that goes back to the Beatles. You know, I mean, Paul was the cute one.
0: Whose team were you on? Who do you identify with?
2: That's a really good question. Um, (laughs) So I've always been a big fan of John Taylor's bass playing because I think I've always thought that he is like the most underrated Mm -hmm. bass line. Probably Nick Rhodes, I think, honestly, because, you know, I've I've interviewed him. Yeah, I interviewed him for the book. I've interviewed him several times. And just the way... And I'm a big keyboard fan, too. And so, like, keyboard music. And so I really appreciate what he does on keyboards. So that was probably it. I was one of those weird kids that I was <laughs> always, like, I would, like, look down on people for liking rock musicians for being cute. I don't know why. I think I was rebelling or something. But mm-hmm. I was like, you know, I like the music. I don't like them just because they're, their looks. So it's
1: like that's above them. But... Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I Who knows? You know, I mean, like I said, yeah. I, was,
2: I could be kind of – I was an unorthodox teenager. so. <laughs>
1: Yeah, but with them, the fashion was integral to the music. I mean, they're players, but the fashion, it's hard to separate them.
2: That's why they're also such an interesting case study is that they did. They had the aesthetic down. They had the visual aesthetic down. They had the, from just the clothes, they had the video aesthetic down. They really knew how to work video. They had the audio down. I mean, you know, there's so many music videos I love, but the songs, when you listen to them, you're like, okay, this is fun, but it's not necessarily art. It's not necessarily something that's like the most amazing thing you've ever heard. But Duran Duran had it all. Like that's what's so, you know, in hindsight, you're just like, they really, they had everything. And. Very few bands do that. I, I think very few bands before or since have been able to kind of put all of that stuff together.
0: We watched MTV in the eighty, in the early 80s, and they were just bands playing and occasionally you would see smashed glass or something or like a little explosion or something. It was very on the cheap. And I don't know what was their inspiration to like, let, let's open up our world instead of just putting this in the studio. Let's go outdoors and explore things. I had never seen, I don't think that was, I'm fairly sure that was the first time I'd ever seen something like, you know, in a fancy locale. Do you know of any other video or something that inspired them? This Hungry Like the Wolf video in Rio? What was the impetus for doing this?
2: It's a really good question. I feel like part of it, too, besides the fact that I think that their managers were just really, you know, they they got along with their management because all of them wanted to see the world. They all were very much like, you know, we came from England. Let's see what else is out there. So I think they all had that kind of curiosity. I think the fact that they worked with Russell Mackay, too, who is just like a a visionary in terms Mm -hmm. of just uh, an amazing, I mean, you look at his music video CV, and he did everything. (laughs) He did so many videos at that point. And he just really helped kind of shape also kind of the the scene and kind of shape the, the direction where music videos went. And so I think that helped a lot, too. Because they were all, and you know what, though, they planned. I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, I, I talked to Russell and, you know, they went around and they scouted locations. I mean, they really treated the music videos like little movies. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also a really big difference, you know, but I think also because they were in the UK, I mean, you know, music videos were so far ahead in the UK, just in terms of, you know, kind of trying to do interesting things. You know, I mean, you had, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody was 1975. You look at that now, and that was very cutting edge for its time. But, you know, you had Bowie doing stuff. You had Ultravox. You know, you had all of these bands. You know, in America, it was like Blondie, Devo, and Talking Heads doing interesting things and that was pretty much like they were like big three but i think that was just a culture you know there was just a culture of music videos and doing interesting movies in the uk and all of the bands really embraced the visual element obviously there was kind of the blitz movement and the blitz kids and that was mm-hmm. kind of in the new romantic movement was all very visual focused but there was just kind of i think a push toward that and i mean in america rock music was still a little behind it was still like we're a bunch of guys we're gonna get up on stage and play our guitars and i like our speed wagon so this is no shade at all to them but like <laughs> They had performance videos. That's what they weren't necessarily yeah. acting. They weren't necessarily comfortable with doing that. They were more into, this is what we do. We are musicians and we play. And so that's what kind of those videos were. But the the, the British musicians were always very visionary in general about music can be more 3D. I mean, if you look at like in the seventies, you, know, you had Pink Floyd who were doing amazing things. You had, you know, Genesis, you had Roxy Music. All of them were very visually interesting. And then the late 70s, you had Sex Pistols and The Clash who were all in your face. And so there was just a lot more going on in kind of the overground. So I think Duran Duran kind of grew out of that culture too.
0: One of the songs K-Rock played, we, we always like looking at B-sides. One of the <laughs> songs that K-Rock played was the song Make Me Smile. And that's Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel, yeah. which was number one in 1975. But I'm sure that was when we heard it. We thought it was a Duran Duran original. I, hadn't, I wasn't familiar with this song at all. And then... You know, lately, because of our podcast, we start reviewing songs that were played and so I watched this video and this guy he kind of reminded me of uh, of Bill Nye in Love Actually like I'm sure that's who he that's who Bill Nye was looking at because he was just like open you know open shirt and just strutting around in this fur collar you know it's great and I'm sure that was kind of like a, an early influence for Duran Duran
2: well and they did such a fine version of that like and I think I don't think they ever did a studio version they just did a live version mm-hmm. but I love that version there's I don't remember the exact date that they did it there's video on YouTube youtube and simon just goes for it. he's perfect mm-hmm. it's like the perfect song for him to sing and the band is really into it and like oh yeah no I, I mean that that's kind of and i know that they were big cockney rebel fans and so that's that's the like the tradition they came out of you yeah. know when you look at they were such music fans and i think that's another big thing about duran duran um and they're still right. big music fans um but like back then like they were just such you know they were the kids you know john and nick who were you know best friends growing up, they would go to the record store and they would, you know, be flipping through the racks. You know, I think, I think I've, there was a, there's a video I think of Nick talking that the record store basically, you know, had them put them to work a little bit, I think to like flip, you know, to like organize things because they were there so often, you know, they, they were the ones that were, you know, watching all the TV shows. They were just absorbing everything. And so, you know, when you grow up, just, you know, so passionate about something and they really poured everything into the band you know and kind of you know they would as as the 70s went on they you know learned about new styles and new music coming from america and elsewhere you know but you know it's it's very interesting like even reading like older um like very very early interviews you know they were talking about like i think like just like really interesting stuff you know they were big music fans and i think that's the other big secret
0: cover of Rio. Is this a model that we know or who is Rio?
2: It is a painting by Patrick Nagel, an American painter who was very popular in the early 80s. He did art for Playboy. And um, that's actually, I think, how Duran Duran's manager discovered. Which sounds really bad, but I guess you know. So, but (laughs) his art, Patrick Nagel, was very well known, and so one of the places was Playboy, and his their Duran Duran's management like came upon them, and the band really liked his style, so they commissioned him to do a couple of paintings, and one was the Rio, and then there was another painting that ended up on a a single cover. That's what it is. It's basically, I mean, if you, if you, it's it's so uncanny because you know the album is Rio. And you see this woman and it's just like, it's Rio, you know, <laughs> there's that, that is just, it's just utterly perfect. And so that is a Patrick Nagel original. And I mean, the, the saddest thing that and Patrick Nagel passed away many years ago, very suddenly, not long after Rio came out, actually, and there's not a ton of interviews with him. One of the things when I was kind of looking for um, material was like, did he ever talk about the record. I couldn't find anything. So, I mean, I don't know if it's just not out there. I didn't look in the right places because I was just like, I'd love to know this (laughs) sort of mindset. You know, what was he thinking when he was doing this? What sort of direction did he get? You know, how did he take that direction? But yeah, he, he passed away in February of 84. And so, um, you know, which is far, far, far too young, but yeah, that was, that's Patrick Nagel. And it's funny because that artistic style is, you know, has been forever just, you know, it's so popular in, in pop culture. You know, Forever 21 last year did a whole line of T-shirts and sweatshirts with him. And so I bought a bunch of stuff. So there's all of these like Rio-esque women on T-shirts. And there's been some like, you know, cartoons that have done kind of taken the style. Like, it's unbelievable.
1: I had Patrick uh, Nagel prints up in my first apartment.
2: Yeah, exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it's just just an amazing kind of artist. But mm-hmm. I mean, he really embodied that time. But that's what makes Duran Duran so great too, is that that's just the perfect, you know, you see that album and you're like, you want to listen, you want to listen to it. You want to be like, what is that? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what is this record? I want to know more about it. And so it's mm-hmm. perfect in that sense. But then there was also the design because they had that painting, but Malcolm Garrett, who did so much work with uh, the band early on, you know, designed the sleeve and he just did. And I talked to him for the book too. And just the way he kind of approached it too, just like phenomenal. He just, he really helped kind of shaped the uh, the merchandise and also kind of album and single aesthetic of the band early on because he designed all the sleeves for the early records or for the early singles too and he worked with like buzzcocks and magazine and so he has this like this really awesome pedigree as
0: well there's one song that I'm shocked they don't play this at they've played this from 1982 to today they've played this song 18 times what is this underplayed song from rio I
2: didn't realize there was trivia Yes, um,
0: there's always trivia on, on our 1982, show.
2: 1982. All right. I'm, I'm looking at the playlist now. It's not the chauffeur because they still play that. I saw them play that in Vegas. Not Save a prayer. Religion <laughs> is not a religion. Rio. And, I have a
1: guess.
2: Uh, you know what? Actually, I think it actually might be my own way. Is that correct?
0: No, they've played that 73 times. There's a song they've played even less.
1: I'm guessing Lonely in Your Nightmare. Yeah, that, it must be that. Then.
0: That is it. Lonely in Your Nightmare has been, wow. they've played it, uh, it, as I looked, they played it um, a total of 18 times, six times in 2001. The last time they played it was in
4: 2007. Even under.
2: I did not realize that that had been played so few times because it was, they played it like early, early on, but I did not realize that it had fallen out of rotation so much.
0: It was never in rotation, apparently, because 18 times in, uh, you know, total. That's, is, that's not a lot. So
2: yeah. That's like, I mean, to me, that's also one of my favorite songs on the record. It's, you know, it's such a beautiful song and it's so, you know, maybe, maybe it's too emotional to play. <laughs> maybe I, just, I, 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 it's like, you know, it was one of the songs I know the most. And so, you mean, know, it had a music video even, you know, I don't, I don't think it yeah, necessarily I got airplay. I think it was on the video album, of course, but I'm not sure if it got
0: airplay. The old saying is never meet your idols. What what has it been like to meet these guys, except for, I guess you haven't met Simon or have you? No, met- I
2: haven't actually okay. met them. in. Per- well, actually, okay. no, I take them back. I did. So like on the pop trash tour, I ended up having um, meet greet passes. And so I had, you know, I have a copy of Rio signed by um, Simon and Nick and Warren. And I honestly don't remember a thing about it. I have pictures, <laughs> but I don't remember meeting, you know, I have no recollection of like, I'm sure we said hello. I'm sure I was very nervous. It's weird because, you know, you think, you know, I can go back at other times and be like, yeah, I remember reading this rock star and they were great. I have no recollection. So it must have been <laughs> fine. You know, they, they didn't. No one was a jerk to me or else because I would have remembered that, you know, it was totally fine. But no, I talked them on the phone and they're all everyone is lovely. Honestly, I'd interviewed Nick and John before over the years to return, we had like, you know, show previews and stuff like that. And they're lovely. Everybody is very thoughtful. And everyone I, I said, you know, my, my takeaway from it is that they're very, very Perceptive about themselves, and not every musician is like that. And like I said, I've interviewed hundreds of musicians. They are very meticulous, and they understand their own work very well. And I—that's massive strength, you know. Because when you're writing a book about someone, you know, it's very helpful to kind of have those insights. Sometimes you interview musicians, and you're like, "Tell me about this record," and they're like, "Well, you know," they give you platitudes and cliches, you know. But everybody was extremely thoughtful and detailed about the record and, and about themselves. And so I think that's one reason why I think Duran Duran has been around for so long, because they are very thoughtful about their own music and career. You know, they do a lot of social media stuff. You can tell they're, they're very, they're lovely people. You know, they're good to fans and and things like that.
1: I feel like more people should know that about them, about how, not just, not just the caretakers of their image and their music, but that they are, uh, you know, as you say, meticulous about it, because that's a big... A, a big selling point for a band, you know, they're not just pretty boys and, in in, you know, in a video that they, that they care that a lot goes into it. I think you're completely right. And I think you know,
2: for many years, people didn't see that. And you still hear people say that sometimes, you know, when you hear certain people say, mm-hmm. oh, Duran Duran, that pop band my sister like, But nothing could be further from the truth, honestly. And you see more and more people now. It's very, very interesting doing kind of a, a lot of social media book promotion, you know, which musicians have been liking my tweets and which people <laughs> I see. You know, saying things. I'm like, you're a fan. I, I, can, I can see you're a fan. You know, it's, you know when Nick Rhodes recently got um, honored Roland's Lifetime Achievement Award, he basically had testimonials. And it was like, a, this is your life, Nick Rhodes. Here's people congratulating you. <laughs> and it was from the people you might expect. But then there's people like all these metalheads. I think it was the guy from Dream Theater. Was talking about like you know nick and so i'm just like how great is that you know there's all these metal heads that like duran duran they have a lot of they're getting a lot more respect for years i've thought that they need to be in the rock and roll hall of fame and just doing this book just like cemented that for me one one thousand percent when you look at their influence and the music they made and just everything over the years and especially with you know rocks music getting in and the cure and depeche mode you know it's time it's like long overdue for them to get in
0: Actually, I have one little. I I put together when I was listening to Rio. I was like, all right, I'm gonna put. I have this five second medley. Let's see if you could pick out these three songs.
2: Oh man, I love it! It's like a game show. Yes.
0: All right. Let's see. All right. Three songs. Guess them.
2: It was "Hungry Like the Wolf," and then uh, "Save a Prayer," and then Rio.
0: Yeah, that was my "Do Do Do." trivia oh question very good. very good dave yeah i know well, after
1: dave
0: <laughs> well i was listening to the album i mean thanks to to annie i was you know re- rediscovering yeah. this album and then all of a sudden like oh yeah look at i remember simon loves to do do a lot i love it <laughs> that's well, like scatting you know, <laughs> simon scatting
2: i feel like it is theater background it's a drama student and you know you have that you can tell that musical theater bit in him comes out. That's, that's one of the reasons why Duran Duran is so great. Fearless is a as a front man. Everything everything you need to be is a, is a charismatic front man. Yeah. He fits the bill. That's
0: why we love him still to this yeah. day. Yeah. Thank you so much. Cool. This was really nice. A
1: lot of fun. Thank yeah. you so much. I appreciate you reaching out. Yes. Thank you so much for doing this. This was great.
0: And we can call you friend of the show. So in case of an emergency, we can uh, we can reach out to you.
2: You can call a friend. I can be one of your lifelines.
0: Perfect. Oh, good. Okay. Best of luck with, uh, with the book. I, I look forward to getting into it. It's going to be, that's going to be a great read.
2: Awesome. I'm looking forward to people seeing it.
0: <laughs> Yay. Bye. Okay. So that concludes our talk with Annie Zaleski. I had a great time. I seem to remember why we created this music podcast is that uh, we like to nerd out about music and certain albums. I think we found someone who's a lot like us.
1: This is exactly the reason we started this podcast. I loved talking about this. I know you did too. But I'm going to talk about Rio forever, and I, I really liked the way she laid out the book, her roadmap of Rio, and how the recording of the album came together. I thought it was really, really great, and I loved hearing about how how she had to submit the proposal. And I'm just imagining, you know, how many people she was up against.
0: Exactly, and that's why we do this podcast is to learn these things. So we've we've learned a little, we've grown a little. I think we're a little more mature now after talking with Annie, who's, who's extremely well-versed in this subject, so. And we now have a, a new friend of the show, so that's exciting as well.
1: you say well-versed in this subject, I think she is well-versed in anything musical she seems to be very well versed in.
0: Yes, if you're on Twitter, I highly suggest you follow her. Uh, I believe it's at Annie Zaleski. So, A-N-N-I-E-Z-A-L-E-S-K-I. So, follow her. And uh, while you're on Twitter, why don't you follow us?
1: Great idea. You can follow us at WDDIM Podcast on Instagram and Twitter, and on Facebook at What Difference Does It Make Podcast. And check out YouTube. We are posting on YouTube... All the time. Short clips, some outtakes that maybe aren't included in our interviews. So there's a lot of fun stuff going up there. So check it out.
0: Reviews are great. If you like what you heard, five stars. We love
1: reading your comments. The comments that you leave. We've left some on YouTube on some of the videos. We love hearing about when you're fans of an artist that we post. Uh, it's, It's a lot of fun for us to read.
0: So with that said, until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out.